It's the big one. The Sky Half Price Sale is here. Choose from award-winning Sky TV and everything on Netflix or unmissable sports with every single live Premier League game on Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports all half price. Take Sky Cinema and watch the biggest blockbusters or grab Sky Broadband Ultrafast for lightning fast speeds. Choose one that suits you. They're all half price for six months. Save big in the Sky Half Price Sale. Search Sky Half Price. Availability subject to location, TV and broadband products sold separately. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. Setup fees, min terms and further terms apply. Offer ends 2nd of September. In the late 1880s, on the banks of the River Seine in Paris, the body of a young girl was laid out after being pulled from the river. The body showed no sign of trauma. There were no markings to show if she had been attacked, no blood was shed, there was no sign of external violence. As a result, an internal violence was decided to have been the murderer in this case and suicide was assumed. Her death was marked as a self-inflicted drowning, although the peaceful expression on her face may have suggested otherwise. As a crowd gathered around the body, they were taken by two things. The peace she appeared to be in and her beauty. Through the crowd, a pathologist emerged. He was too taken by the beauty of the dead woman. He was so compelled by it that not only did he have the face sketched in order to find relatives or friends of the woman, he also had a wax plaster of her death mask made. Paris at the time was going through a phase of displaying morbid art. As more people came across the dead woman's face and the images looking to identify her, the more they sought to keep a copy of it for themselves. They displayed it on their walls. They would discuss the face with their friends and discuss the smile of the woman's face as though she was never human at all. Her smile in the violence of death seemed contradictory and alluring. The women and girls of high society began to use makeup to try and look like the woman with no name. She soon gained the name Annie, as no name could be found. Over time, her face began to appear in more and more places and the name Annie followed. The face spread further than Paris as the culture of the city became desirable to the world. The years moved on, but the face remained constant. Many years later, an American doctor called James Allen and an Austrian-Czech doctor named Peter Saffer approached a Norwegian toymaker, Asmund Lerdel, as they were looking for innovative ways to teach medicine. CPR training was becoming more and more popular as people began to understand how its basic training could help save lives across the world. 
the two doctors were seeking to create a doll which could be used to demonstrate the techniques rather than having the trainees press on each other's chests, potentially causing injury. Together, the doctors and the toy maker developed the world's first CPR doll. When it came to placing a face on the doll, they couldn't decide on what it should look like. Do they make it look like a face in distress? Would this distress the trainees? They began to research what type of face would best fit here. They looked through the headshots of models. They searched on the streets of the world. But one face stood out above them all. The face of peace in distress. The face of the dead girl in Paris. Annie. The doll became an instant success and once again Annie's face shot around the world. This time, instead of being admired, everyone who met her face was ordered to ironically perform the procedure on her likeness that may actually have saved the real girl's life. The years moved on but the face remained constant. Many years later, the face was a regular sight in hospitals, workplaces and everywhere else people gather where lives could be saved. It was just a face with a name. When the training is being conducted, the trainee is asked to refer to the doll as Annie and they are asked to begin CPR by asking the doll, Annie, are you okay? In 1987, a 29-year-old American singer released his seventh studio album. In the album, the singer worked with a producer called Quincy Jones on a song called Smooth Criminal. In the song, the singer appears to come across the body of a young woman. The woman is lying unconscious in a pool of blood on a carpet. The woman appears to have been chased to her death. As the singer goes to help the woman, he clears the area and asks the woman, Annie, are you okay? Annie, are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? The song, the CPR doll, the desk mask and the paintings forever immortalized and gave fame to the girl who nobody knew. There was an element of beauty to Annie's unfortunate death. As too there is for her life post-death. It's a tale of peace after horror, life after death, and there is a wonderful though unfortunate irony of her death saving millions from the same death. Overall, it's a nice story. Now I ask you to join me on today's tale. 
While the mortality of Annie's face came from beauty, not all the faces of medicine have enjoyed such a similar path. In the northern half of our island, in 1792, two children were born. Both had the first name William. Having not met in their early years and with their own stories until their meeting point, for the duration of this story may I refer to them by their separate surnames. Burke and Hare William Burke was born in Urney in the county of Tyrone in 1792. He was one of two sons born into a middle-class Catholic family. Burke, together with brother Constantine, enjoyed a very peaceful and comfortable upbringing. A young man, still in his teens, Burke decided he wanted to see the world and he enlisted in the British Army. He was enlisted as a member of the Donegal Militia and spent some years in the Army. It was when he met a woman from Mayo he left the army and settled in her home county. Burke found it hard to settle in Mayo. He was unsettled amongst his in-laws and found it difficult to be accepted by them. The time came to divide up the land and after an argument with his father-in-law about the amount he should get, Burke abandoned his new home and wife. Afraid of being tracked down by her family for deserting her and banishing her into the outskirts of society as a miser, Burke ran to Scotland for safety. Here he managed to secure a job working on the Union Canal as a labourer and settled in the small village of Madison near Falkirk. Life was good for Burke here. He met a woman and he quickly made her his second wife. A woman called Helen MacDougall. When work dried up on the canal, the couple happily moved to Tanner's Close in Edinburgh. They began selling second-hand clothes to impoverished locals. Some of the clothes had entered their possession through less than legal means. Burke built up a good reputation amongst the locals and saved just enough to open his own store and to trade as a cobbler. He became a well-liked businessman in the area, always quick with a joke or a story and always willing to help others. In the evenings, he and Helen could be found in a local tavern, entertaining with stories, songs or dances. When not in his shop, entertaining in the pubs or helping others, Burke could be found in a church. He was a man of faith and prayed regularly. Being a man who liked to help, Burke often enlisted himself and his wife on harvest teams in order to help his community prosper. 
It was in the summer of 1827, on a harvest run, that Burke met the other William of our tale, Mr. Hare. William Hare was born in 1792 in County Armagh. Hare worked a series of odd jobs in Ireland, the most common being a farm labourer. Looking for something more regular, he moved to Scotland and got a job on the Union Canal as a general labourer. He worked in this role for about seven years. When work on the canal ended, he moved to Edinburgh where the Irish communities were looking after their own. He stayed as a lodger in the home of a man called Logue and his wife Margaret Larrod. When Logue died, Hare wasted no time in marrying the dead man's wife and taking over his home and lodging business. Hare was not a man of the people. He was an aggressive, violent and short-tempered man who accepted jokes as an invitation for a fight. If blood wasn't drawn in the quarrel, it wasn't worth the effort. He regularly picked up new scratches and scars, rewards for his conquests. He did not care for helping his fellow man. Hare and Burke, as Irish businessmen in the town, began to become friends after they met on the 1827 harvest. Hare was there to earn. They drank together and shared stories of home. Burke spent time with Hare as he felt a bit sorry for this aggressive man who alienated people. On November 29, 1827, the two Williams were drinking together in Hare's home. As they did, word came from the lodgings that a lodger had died. The two men went to investigate and found that the story was true. The lodger had died of dropsy. Hare was devastated not because of the death in his business, but because the man was due a pension from the army and he was awaiting payment before paying for his lodgings. He owed four pound, which was a substantial figure at the time. Hare explained this to Burke and in his kind nature, Burke decided to help Hare as the loss of this money could have broke his business. The two came up with a plan. At the time, in the United Kingdom, medicine was rife with research of the human body. Anatomy was the driving force for funding. Medics were desperate to understand the inner workings of the body. 
In order to study this properly, bodies were required for research. Should a family member or friend pass away, instead of donating the body to science as you can do now, you could sell the body, earning anything from three to eight pounds per body. Burke and Hare decided, once the scene of the man's death had settled, that they would remove his body from the coffin, fill it with logs, seal it back up, and have that sent to his family. They then took the body through the darkened streets of Edinburgh. Weaving through the narrow streets under the shadows of the moon, the two men carried the lodger's body to a local anatomist. They began to tell the story of how the man died, but the anatomist, a man called Robert Knox, desperate to have the body to further his career, asked no questions, paid the men and sent them on their way. As they left Knox with their fee paid, he informed them that he would reward them just as handsomely should they ever find a deceased lodger with an unpaid bill again. Hare's business was saved and Burke felt he had done a relatively good deed for his friend. Knox paid them £7. Hare took £4 for his bill and Burke took £3 for his help. It was £2 more than what Burke was making on a weekly basis in his cobbler business. The two were amazed by the fee they got. They also understood it was as high as it was because the body was quite fresh and therefore truer to the human experience post-death for the anatomist. The other reason for their high fee was as a result of the laws of the land. In 1752, a law was brought in called the Murder Act. This law stated that anatomists could only dissect the bodies of those who were executed for murder. This frustrated the worlds of science and medicine as the bodies often took an age to reach them and had expired their use in some cases. As well as this, due to the lack of evidence in some cases, only 30 to 40 bodies a year were available to the anatomists to compete over. To get around this, Robert Knox began to pay those who were willing to dig up the freshly buried and bring them to him in exchange for a fee. His research propelled his career forward and few questions were asked. He was bringing science and medicine forward. To combat this action, across Ireland and the UK, people began placing large cages over the graves of their loved ones. These were called mortar safes and were built into the ground and secured closed. This stopped the bodies from being stolen post-death. These cages can still be seen in the graveyards across these islands to this day.
the grave diggers had a number of issues to deal with. One being the morality of what they were doing. Another being how they were to sneak the bodies out of the graveyards to get them to Knox. The more frightening issue they had though was the resurrection of the dead. Cholera at the time was rife in the poor communities of Ireland and the UK. One of the issues with cholera then was that the patient could show full signs of death but still remain in their earthly vessel. Without modern medical tests, many of these people were then buried alive. When they awoke, they found themselves six feet deep in a graveyard running out of air. Some tried scratching on the coffin roof to try and get out, but sadly, unsuccessfully. When the grave diggers found these graves, the bodies had faces of panic and horror. The fingernails had ripped off while trying to scratch the timber roofs away. The underside of the coffins were also all scratch marks. The grave diggers believed them to be the dead having come back to life. To combat this risk, some placed bells on the top of the graves of their loved ones. Attached to the bell was a rope. The other side of the rope was tied to the wrist of the deceased. Should the person awake, they would ring the bell to announce that they still lived. On windy, dark nights, these bells still ring today. To sidestep today's story for a moment. In 1832, Sligo had one of the worst cholera outbreaks. Here at the time lived Charlotte Thornley. Charlotte lived amongst the communities which told the stories of the dead coming back to life. The people who saw their dead relatives return to the world of the living during their wakes. Charlotte's full story will be told another day as well as the story of the son she had later in life. The son who she told these stories to. The son whose name was Bram Stoker. The man who wrote the story of undead man Dracula. Some months after Burke and Hare brought the body to Robert Knox, Burke watched out his shop door as a panicked hare ran towards him. When he entered the store, he frantically asked for a word in private. Retreating to the back office, he explained his business was again in trouble. A miller called Joseph was staying in the lodgings and he had a high fever and was talking in tongues. 
Hare believed he had a very serious infection of some sort, and if he died there, the authorities may close his business to stop whatever disease he had spreading. This wasn't uncommon for the time. Hare convinced Burke that in order to save the business, they should kill Joseph and move his body to Knox's research lab so that there would be no trace of their involvement in his disappearance. Burke agreed to help his friend and together they snuck into Joseph's room. Hare placed a pillow over Joseph's face and Burke, being the bigger man, pressed down. Joseph fought hard for his life. He tried to wail for help, so Hare pressed down on his mouth to quieten him. He scratched and clawed at Burke's arm to try and remain on earth. Within a moment of life having left his body, it was being shuttled quickly across Edinburgh. Knox paid them £10 and asked no questions. A few weeks later, an Englishman was staying with Hare. He was a man of the road, selling matches and other trinkets to make a living. Whilst he stayed with Hare, he fell ill with jaundice. Afraid with the effects this may have on his business, Hare again approached Burke and explained the situation. That night, the Englishman found his lifeless body on the operating table of Knox, having suffered the same fate as Joseph. Again, £10 was placed in the pockets of the two Williams. A few weeks later, a wealthy pensioner was staying with Hare. She was in town to sell salt as an additional income to her pension. Seeing the money she had on her, Hare approached Burke. No excuse was required this time. They decided this time the lady didn't require a quick death, and with their eyes on the potential income, they spent a large fee on alcohol getting the woman drunk to make her death come with ease for them. With their acceptance of their new high-paying jobs, the two men began a spree funded by the research of the unquestioning Knox. A few days later, another woman stayed with Hare and again found herself drunker than she had ever been before and, as with the others, she too was sold to Knox post-death. As time went on, the murders continued, and inspired by the money, their wives became involved in their acts. The wives fell out over the fees and who was doing more of the work and who should be paid more. They both planned on killing each other and selling the bodies. As they quarrelled, Burke and Hare thought all the people disappearing in Hare's lodgings might be bad for business. 
they looked to the homeless people of the city. The Irishman James Wilson found himself talking late at night to Burke and Hare as they bought a series of drinks for him. James was a misfortunate man who had lost some of his mind's power to the drink as he entered adulthood. He was living rough in the city. When the time came to have him expire, James fought hard and bravely to try and save himself. He was overpowered and died with various bruises and marks of a fight. The following morning, as Knox's students examined the corpse of the day, they recognised the man as Daft Jamie, a homeless man known to the student population of Edinburgh for his ways on campus. Knox argued that this was a different man and he had the students dissect the head of James so he could no longer be identified. A few nights later, an Irish woman called Margaret Docherty was lured back to the lodgings by Burke, who told her his mother was also Docherty and asked if she would come to look at pictures to see if they were related. He got her drunk and executed her. He too got drunk and in the haze he decided to hide her body on some hay and deal with the fee collection in the morning. As he passed out, the former tenants of the room returned to collect some forgotten belongings. They entered the room to find the unconscious body of a woman lying in a pool of blood. Beside it, the passed out William Burke. Quickly, they ran to the police. By the time they were arrested, Burke and Hare were responsible for the murders of at least 16 people over a period of a few short months. In short, Knox was removed from questioning as he belonged to a different class. During the trial, the two men blamed each other for the murders. Helen, Burke's wife, was found not guilty of involvement and, upon her release, was regularly attacked by mobs in Edinburgh. She soon left the city with no accounts as to what happened to her once free, or if she lived long enough to actually leave the city. Hare's wife, Margaret, was also released due to lack of evidence. Having heard what happened to Helen, she too tried to leave the city. Whilst boarding a ship to Ireland, she was attacked by a mob. There is no proof as to whether or not she survived this attack. As he was the one found with the body, Burke took the brunt of the blame. Hare was released in 1829 after a short stay in prison. 
While leaving Edinburgh for his own safety, he hid in a mail coach to Dumfries. He was recognised by one of the passengers who spread the word of his presence. As he was attacked, a group of police fought the crowd back. He managed to get to a lodging house where he was again spotted and attacked with bottles and stones. 100 policemen fought the crowd back. The following day, the Scottish police brought Hare to the English border and set him free into England, never to be seen again. As for Burke, he was deemed the architect behind the murders. On the morning of January 29, 1829, Burke was walked out in front of 25,000 people. Scaffolds were raised with people charged 5 to 20 shillings to use them for a better view of what was to come. Before he was hung, Burke was informed, your body should be publicly dissected and anatomized, and I trust that if it is ever customary to preserve skeletons, yours will be preserved, in order that posterity may keep in remembrance your atrocious crimes. After his death, as he was a murderer, his body was now available for use in science. On February 1st, a few days after Burke's execution, his corpse was publicly dissected by a professor called Monroe in the university's anatomy theatre. Such was the demand to see this that a riot broke out in the crowd as people scrambled to get a look at the irony unfolding. During the procedure, which lasted for two hours, Monroe dipped his quill pen into Burke's blood and wrote, This is written with the blood of W.M. Burke, who was hanged at Edinburgh. This blood was taken from his head. Burke's skeleton was given to the Anatomical Museum of the Edinburgh Medical School, where it remains today. His death mask and a book said to be bound with his tanned skin can be seen at Surgeons Hall Museum. Many of the skeletons found in the science classrooms across the world today are modelled off the skeleton of William Burke. The music for this episode was written, performed and produced by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you want to help support this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish or leave us a review on your podcast app. Ryan is Anam Dunn. Gurav Mahakut, Slananish.